Welcome to Stacy on the Right, the podcast, where I am so excited to be joined by an author who is bringing something completely different to this conversation about our media. It's Batia Angar Sargon. She's the deputy opinion editor for Newsweek. She's an author. Her book is How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. And you can find that at EncounterBooks.com. So excited to have you with us today, Batia. Thank you so much for having me. It's really, really an honor. All right. So first of all, why did you write this book? I'm so glad you wrote it, but what prompted you to go there? So um, this isn't actually initially the book that I wanted to write. I wanted to write a book about how Americans are much more united than our media wants us to know and our politicians want us to know. I had been doing a lot of reporting from the South during the Trump years. And as like a lefty journalist from New York, I was shocked by what I was finding. You know, it just wasn't the sort of divided nation that I've been led to believe still exists. You know, there weren't the racial divides that we talk about all the time in the North and, you know, in the coastal cities, you know, amongst ourselves and the elites. And I really felt like There was this amazing gospel almost that I wanted to tell about how Americans were finally united about the most important values that this country was founded on. And I couldn't sell that book. I would have editors tell me, nobody wants to hear this. There's no market for it. And so finally, an editor sat me down and she said to me, look, you know, you're telling me we're not that divided. Why do I think we are? Maybe you should write that book. And so I think that's the book that I wrote. I was trying to understand why the media is pushing this moral panic about race at a time when it could not be less accurate about America. Um, and and I, 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 in my book, I argue that it's actually a lot more about class than it is about race or even politics. Okay, so that is actually a fascinating story of how you came to this particular topic. So um, talk to us a little bit about what we learn in the book. If we're And you can click the link in the show notes, um, and you, it'll take you right over to Encounter Books where you can purchase it for yourself. Batia, what, what do you want people to know when they're reading your book? I want them to know that when they see a host on CNN sneering at them and looking down at them, they're not imagining it. You know, that the, the journalists underwent a status revolution over the course of the 20th century to where they became part of really the top 10 percent on the liberal side. And they are using race. They're using the real pain of black Americans in order to distract from a huge class divide in America from income inequality that they are benefiting from. That's the argument I'm making. And, you know, the book opens with a scene from Don Lemon's show from 2018 where he's sitting there, a man who's worth millions and millions of dollars, you know, with another host from CNN who's worth even more, $25 million. And the two of them are sitting there calling every person who voted for Donald Trump a racist. You know, they're sitting there with all of their economic privilege, their millions in the bank, sneering at the president who won the overwhelming majority of people who don't have a college degree. That's what my book is about, how, how people who have won by every measure are using race in order to smear and smear at the working class, the people who have lost out. And, you know, Stacey, I, I was watching a clip when you went on CNN um, in 2016, and you were there, ta- they were, they, you know, Lemon, Don Lemon had you on, and he was saying that it was racist of Donald Trump to say that there are black neighborhoods where people are living, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, in hell was, I think, the word that he that, that Trump mm-hmm. he was describing yeah. the fact that there are neighborhoods where black Americans 
have um, essentially the life expectancy of the Congo, right? Now, this is just true, right? But the liberal media is very uncomfortable talking about crime because it indicts them, right? It indicts liberal cities. And it was so funny because Don Lemon was saying, well, I'm black and I'm not living in hell. I don't live under, you know, I don't get shot. I don't live under threat of being shot. But fast forward to 2020, and it was Don Lemon who was saying that black men walking outside in America, are, are there's a genocide against them. You, there was a total flip of the script the minute it benefited the elite media class. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like that there was a total reversal. Like they used this to smear you and to smear Trump, right? Which I'm, I'm on the left, but watching that, I was like, that's so gross. Why would they talk to you that way? And then, of course, when it benefited them to start pushing the, the narrative that, you know, America is hell for black Americans, they started pushing it, right, on, on their own. A total 180 on that subject. Yeah, it would be great to get invited back, although I actually have a policy that I don't go on CNN any longer because of the... Um, the online harassment that comes along with going on. If you go on as a conservative, um, then people pour into your Twitter feed and they, they curse you. They, you know, they, the sneering is, is not such a big deal, but the um, there's a lot of really nasty vitriolic hate filled tweets that fill up your timeline and it lasts for about three days for every hit. And if you block them, then they just go to your blog and use your contact form. They'll, you know, they'll email you, they'll, uh, whatever they can do to, to reach you just to, you know, your, the kinds of things that they say are obviously not true, but you can't keep reading that. And if you wake up in the morning after going on an evening hit with Don Lemon and you have, you know, 10, 15 of those emails, it's a real day killer. So we, um, we kind of went on quite a few times. I had some good hits. Well, well, you know, I, I feel like they encourage it because of the way he talks. He, he runs the show like it's on a, a cable news network, but he runs it like it's a, um, a, like a Jerry Springer-esque evening program, only without the gender reveals or the, you know, the uh, paternity reveals. He, he runs it in that kind of fashion. So the people who watch are encouraged to harass and try to humiliate the people who appear on the show. And so I, the last time I talked to the booker, who she's just as sweet as she can be, and she was like, we really want you to come on. And the last time I'd been on, um, it was actually after that hit, where they told me I was discussing one topic. I really researched and went into it and was prepared to discuss it. And then they had a panel on with me on a completely different subject. Now, I could discuss That's it, terrible. but it was meant to be a gotcha. So um, I don't go on there anymore. But I, I'll tell you. Batia, it is to me such a travesty because I grew up overseas watching CNN every morning before school mm. when it was Bobby Batista and Lynn Vaughn, and they were breaking news stories from the sand, mm. from the Middle East, from uh, you know places that had been bombed by uh, you know insurgencies. Mm. They would actually have reporters on the ground standing there with sand blowing, their hair would be blowing, and they'd have on a Kevlar vest, and they'd be reporting, and Bobby Batista would be looking down at the TV, this is old school, and then she'd look up at the camera, and she'd have this face. It was just so severe and so like, this is the end of everything. And she'd be reporting. And I grew up thinking, there is no other news but CNN. And then, of course, you know, I get stateside for the first time and realize there's not only local news, there's all this other news that is not CNN. But I, I considered it all to be subpar. To see the fall, to see it become simply an opinion-based, you know, it's it's all opinion. And there's nothing wrong with opinion. I'm an opinion person because I'm a radio host and podcaster. But we need hard news. And CNN doesn't do that anymore. And I find it interesting that you 
that you saw that clip because 2016, it feels like it's light years behind us. Like we've come through so much with the pandemic. So you said you're on the left. Talk to me a little bit about how it is to be on the left and to write this kind of a book where you're kind of taking on <laughs> the media, which is mostly left-leaning. Well, um, I, I, I was on CNN to talk about it. So I have to give them props for having me on. That was very cool of them. Um, but I, like, like one of the things I noticed is um, what I consider to be the left is no longer what, what's considered to be the left, right? Like, so for example, I look at somebody like you, right? You're black, you're a conservative, right? You're, you represent um, the, the, the sort of median view within the black community much more than someone like Don Lemon, right? Like you, you poll black Americans, right? 70% of them call themselves either conservative or moderate in their views. Of course, you know, a lot of, you know, the majority vote for Democrats. But in terms of where they are, like in terms of their social views, in terms of how they define themselves, it's conservative, it's moderate. You would think that a news media that wanted to accurately tell the great American story and reflect Americans as we are would be like scrambling over themselves to platform voices like yours in the liberal media, right? We're supposed to be the side that cares about the black community. We're supposed to be the side that cares about the working class. We're supposed to be the side that cares about the people who need to be elevated, whose, whose, whose economic fortunes have not been prioritized, right? That's what it means to me to be on the left. It means to, to look around in America, look at whose fortunes are rising, who's, who's downwardly mobile, and think about how can we prioritize the needs of the people who we have long ignored, the descendants of slaves, right? People who still, are, we have a police brutality problem when it comes to black Americans. How do we talk about these things in a way that the people we're advocating on behalf of recognize what we're saying? That's not what you see in the media. You turn on your TV and you see people advocating for defunding the police, which is a view that's opposed by 81% of black Americans. Mm -hmm. And to me, like that disconnect is just like, how do they not see it? Like to me, being on the left means going to communities and saying, you tell me what you need. Instead, what you see is highly educated, increasingly highly affluent white liberals who have gone so far to the left that they've outpaced the black community in the extremity of their views on race, and then acting like they're representing that community when actually what they're doing is representing their own economic interests, Stacey. That's, that's the argument that I make. So I love that because um, for me, I remember, and this wasn't very long ago, this is just under 10 years ago, where we had lots of friends who were on the left. We never really discussed politics. We just kind of assume that we all had the same desires, whether or not we were voting on the same side was irrelevant because yes. our kids were the reasons why we were friends. We, we met yes. at the school and the kids made friends and then you kind of make friends with those moms. And then the ones you hit it off with, those are like your real, real friends. And the other moms, you may not be close to them, but your kids play together. So you see each other frequently. So it's a huge community and there are varying um, viewpoints. There are people who don't believe in war and they're pacifists and they don't even believe in politics because they believe the U.S. federal government actually is exists just to wage war. So they, they don't even vote because they, they just don't want to be a part <laughs> of it. And then you have everybody else, uh, you know, on the left, slightly on the left. You know, the Jewish left is is that's a real thing. Um, they're conservative in their beliefs and the way that they live, but they're very liberal on social policy. And, you know, so they, they have their ideas. And then there's people on the right. And that's a whole spectrum, too. It's not just, you know, hardcore people on the right or Bible thumpers. It's a whole there, there are atheists who are on the right. They believe in everything mm -hmm. in the Republican Party platform, except the parts that refer to God. And so while I don't agree with them, 
every one of those is a valid viewpoint that should be respected in our country because mm-hmm. our constitution protects that. So, you know, I'm I'm fascinated that you are you're you're basically you're a blue dog Democrat or a traditional Democrat, someone who you and I might disagree on how we get there, but we both love America. We both think the police are a needed institution with with the possibility of reform, because I'm never against reforms as long as they're locally driven, not driven by the federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I I wish more people would just because I think it takes a few deep breaths. I have to do this myself because I have strong viewpoints. I have to take a few deep breaths and say, hmm. Okay, I don't agree with this. Can I find anything about it that's good or could work? Can I find anything about it that that is, you know, that is a thing that I might not want to do, but I'm willing to compromise to do if I can get something that's a priority for me? And when I do that, I'm usually able to see if something is truly horrible, bad, no good, never a good idea, or if it's just something that is the direction I would not go in, but it could still work. These are huge differences in the way that we think and approach problems, but it doesn't mean we can't have solutions. And I I find at the local level, I can sit down next to a Democrat and we can find something to have common ground on and we can come to a solution. But at the federal level, we're very polarized and the ideas are very different. And the Democrats are the driver of that chasm that that now exists between us. And I just wish more of them would have your attitude because I'll sit down with anybody to have a conversation (laughs) about policy. I really will. But I, to me, what you're describing is leadership. Like you are, you have these leadership qualities where you're saying, this is not about my ego. This is about a thing that I want to accomplish. And I would like you to want to accomplish it. Where do we, how do we get there together? And I feel like that's very, very much missing, um, you know, on the extremes of both sides. But I agree with you that ironically, the right has been more picking up the mantle of saying like, well, let's just talk this out. Let's see if we can't find common ground. Um, You know, it used to be the right was the obstructionist and the left was like, hey, why can't we work on things? Now it's sort of like the right is sort of like, well, can't we find common ground? And the left is like, no, you're all racist. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why they're able to get black Americans in large part to vote for the Democrats, because it's a knee-jerk reaction if you're not going to take it very far, because most most Americans aren't as deep into politics as you and I are, Batio. They're not going to be, you know, looking up statistics. They're not going to know the statistic that you shared, which I've shared so many times that 81, 82 percent, depending on the poll you look at, of black Americans, people polled in black neighborhoods and cities and, and in the suburbs say they want more police because they understand that the police mm-hmm. bring a level of safety. They actually investigate crime. They may not enjoy every interaction. They may want some kind of, you know, maybe community policing model where the the police come into communities and they begin relationship building, but they don't want less police. They're looking for more ways to engage them. So um, I think it's, it's fascinating because if we really looked at what people were doing, those black Americans who don't know those statistics, if they, if they were not convinced that Republicans are racist and even the black Republicans hate themselves, then they would look at the policies and they'd see school choice and say, oh, wow, the Democrats don't want school choice, but the Republicans will give my child an opportunity to go to that good school that I want them to go to. And I can stay right where I live in my neighborhood that I love. I think I can vote for but that. Stacey, is, isn't it? OK, I totally agree with you. I think school choice would be such a winning argument for many, many black Americans. But I feel a little bit frustrated that Republicans don't show up and make the case like that they don't spend the time 
building those relationships and making the case. Like, it seems to me almost like they've sort of like the Democrats take the black community for granted. And so they just take their votes for granted and then give them nothing. And but the Republicans have sort of they've just seeded that. And I, I feel very frustrated that there isn't more of a push. What, what do you think? So you and I are on the same language again. We're in this. We're in the same <laughs> unimind. It's like a hive, and you and I are in there, and we're buzzing around, and we're having so much fun. Because I've just talked about this with Olivia Rondeau here on the podcast and on the show on Sirius. She has the same message that you just shared, which is, and she's very young, no children, not married. Like she's, she's not even in the educational sphere as far as being a parent. But she says the messaging is all wrong because the Republicans, number one, they're not there, and when they are there, they're talking about. Uh, you know, smaller government, lower taxes. And those are actually important issues. But the thing you want to meet on with a voter that you don't already have in your camp is something that they feel like this is a problem I can't fix. And it really impacts my family and school choice is that issue. So the answer to that, I don't know what the answer is, because I've talked about it many times doing surrogacy for the RNC and for the Trump campaign. Um, School choice was a platform issue for President Trump. But it it's the RNC and the main Republican body that has to come at that in unison to talk about it in order for it to be real and in order for, for Democrats to have to respond. Because they always say, oh, we don't mind school choice, but then they actually do mind it. They mind it a lot. But we actually love it, but we don't talk about it enough. And and the case study is Ron DeSantis. He ran on that and won because black women put him over the top for the governorship because he told them he'd give their kids school choice, and he did. Well, I hope to see more of that. I, one of my most controversial views, I think, is I really like to see when people show up for Republicans who are being taken for granted for, by Democrats, because that would force the Democrats to actually pay attention and actually give them something in exchange for their votes. So, you know, when you see something like Glenn Youngkin winning, you know, flipping majority black districts, right, getting 14 percent of black women, which is like it's not that much, but it's double what President Trump got. I, and, and, and it's crazy. almost impossible. That number is almost yes, impossible yes, for Republicans. Yes, 14% yes. of the women, we get 16% of the men, yeah. but never the women. Yeah. And it really showed, I think, the power of the school issue to, you know, average Americans who are just sort of fed up with the way that they're being treated by liberals in charge. <laughs> so true. And it also showed that if you tell people that you have a solution to a problem they have, a political solution, and you're a politician, if you tell them all about your solution and then tell them, vote for me and I'll make it happen, they will. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. <laughs> right. Crazy, crazy. <laughs> wow. Who knew? I mean, it's such a new idea, campaigning on stuff that you're actually going to do and then doing it. <laughs> well, I have to say, I was so excited to see you pop up. I'm so glad we were able to make this work to catch you, to have this conversation. I plan to tweet out about the book because I am i can't wait to read it. I'm excited that you're writing this and encouraging people to compete for um, what right now is a very marginalized vote, the black vote, and also the other issues you're covering in your book. It's within Counter Books, and I'm so excited to have you here to talk about it. The book is called How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy, and the author is Batia Ungar Sargon, Deputy Opinion Editor for Newsweek. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh my gosh, Stacey, thank you so much for having me and for your leadership. It just, it means the world to me. Thank you. I'm so excited about having you here, and I hope that we can talk to you again on the podcast and perhaps even on the night show. If you stay up late at night, we can talk again. (laughs) I'd love it. (laughs) All right, that's the show for today, everybody. That's the podcast. Go to StaceyOnTheRight.com and FamilyVisionMedia.org to find out more. God bless, and we'll see you next time.